There is no shortage of bad news in the world. It doesn't matter whether you're looking online or in your local paper or news broadcast. We are reminded day in and day out of tragedy after tragedy. Perhaps it involves a wildfire or a volcano or a terrible accident or perhaps a pandemic that is sweeping the globe. Every day, we are told stories of horrible loss, and we have to somehow process them, think about them, and we have different ways of doing that. Here in the text that we're going to be looking at today, in Luke chapter 13, we see a situation where a crowd of people come to Jesus with some tragic news, and I suppose they were waiting to see how Jesus would respond to it. I'm so thankful that not only did they get to see how Jesus responded to it, but that we get to see it as well so that we might learn and that we might grow from it. Let's look now at Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through verse 9. Listen as I read from God's Word. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Thus ends the reading of our text. We need God's help uh, when we study his word. So let's pray and ask for that help right now. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for your word. And Lord, as we come to this part of your word, we're reminded not only of the hard things to hear in this world, but how sometimes we come to texts that are hard to hear as well. We pray that you will give us ears to listen, hearts that will believe and apply these truths, and that your Spirit will help us all to grow in faith as we study. Oh Lord, I pray that your Spirit will help me, that I will speak in a way that's encouraging to the people who listen, and that is honoring to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this text today, I want us to recognize right off the bat that this is a difficult text. Anytime we deal with tragedy and people trying to come to terms with that, it is a difficult situation. And when we see Jesus's response uh, here to this query about uh, how he would respond to the killing of these Israelites who had gone to 
to, to actually participate in worship in Jerusalem, uh, we might find Jesus's response somewhat off-putting. But I really want us to look at this text and see what it is teaching us. So the first thing I want to see is that Jesus brings up immediately in his response a question. Let's look at that again. The people bring up a story that is uh, nowhere else uh, talked about in terms of the history of Israel about an incident where there were Israelites who had come from Galilee down to Jerusalem in order to participate in worship. They had brought animals to sacrifice as part of the religious ceremonies. Most writers believe this would have been at the time of Passover, for instance. And when they got there with these animals to sacrifice, for some reason, the Roman governor Pilate attacked them and actually killed them, so much so that it says here that their blood flowed with the blood of the sacrifices. Now, this would have been a tragic situation, a reversal of what you would expect, because of course, when people came to worship God, they expected a joyful or a meaningful or a sobering kind of experience, but they certainly didn't expect one that would lead to injury and death. And so this would have been angering, frustrating, difficult, But notice how Jesus responds. Jesus asks a question here uh, that is very important. In verse 2, he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And this shows us the first thing we want to look at in this text. And that is we want to look at things in terms of responsibility. That is our natural reaction. We want to look at things in terms of responsibility. So Jesus says, do you think that these people who were killed were responsible for their own death? In other words, what he's saying is, do you think they had done some evil, had sinned against God in some way, were such notorious rebels against God or sinners that they deserve this sudden and violent death? You see, in Israel, there was a common association between uh, whatever befell you or you know, whatever happened to you, uh, that it was associated with basically your merit or demerit. And so whether or not you enjoyed something good, uh, well, that could have been because you've been obedient or honored God in some way. And if you experienced something negative, it was because you had disobeyed or dishonored God. And so Jesus says, do you think that's what this is, that these people are in some way responsible for their own tragic death? Do you know that we think the same way? I think there are three things that we tend to do in reaction to tragic circumstances uh, that are in this realm of thinking in terms of responsibility. First of all, we tend to blame the people who are actually the victims. We blame the person who is in the car accident or the person who was in uh, the tragic building construction or we or whatever other circumstance it is. And we say, well, why were they there? Or could they have gotten out? Or could they have paid more attention? Or could they have been more careful? And so our first instinct is to actually blame the people that the terrible thing has happened to. And we see that all the time. But I think we also have a tendency to blame 
uh, the per some other person. For instance, in this situation, uh, where we see the story of this violent governor, uh, Roman governor, Pilate, we would say, well, this is simply another example of those in power abusing their power to victimize the poor and the oppressed. In other words, we would say the responsibility here falls on the oppressor, and that's very common. In our world today, as a matter of fact, uh, whenever something terrible happens, it's almost inevitable that uh, Congress will open up a hearing about it if it raises, rises to some sort of national prominence. And so they will do a big investigation to try to find out who's responsible. When I drive up and down the interstate highway, there are giant billboards that have very easy to remember phone numbers where I can call lawyers because of some accident or some medical situation or some death in my family happens, there must be someone responsible and that someone should pay. And that's our tendency to think in terms of responsibility. But of course, many people, maybe even some of you listening right now, have had a situation either in your own life or in the life of someone that you love where a tragic situation has caused them to place responsibility onto God. You know, I had have had those conversations many times. I remember years ago, one of the first times I heard it as clearly put as this, a person told me that they couldn't believe in God because their sister had died and they didn't want her to die. And so when she thought about the tragic event of her sister's death, immediately she said, God is responsible. And that is our instinct, to say someone was responsible. The person who had the terrible thing happen to them, some other person in power or authority who should be held responsible, or some other assailant, or thirdly, that God himself is responsible. This is our tendency. Now, let's ask the question here in this text. Does Jesus address that? No. Even though he brings it up, he brings up the reality that people think in terms of responsibility. He says that's actually not the most helpful way to think about it. Now, in saying that, I don't think Jesus is saying that we shouldn't hold people accountable for their terrible and harmful actions in any way. I think Jesus, as the great prophet, the one who is bringing in a new kingdom, was saying to the people that he was speaking to and to us through his word that we need to first think in another way. We don't need to think first about responsibility. And what is it that we need to think about? Well, it brings us really to the second thing I want us to see, and that is that we need to think of these things in terms of inevitability. So I said we tend to react immediately on responsibility. In other words, blame the person who something terrible happened to, blame somebody else, or blame God himself. Instead, Jesus wants us to think of the inevitability of these things happening. Notice how he continues uh, in after uh, the part of the verse that we've already read in uh, verse, uh, the end of verse, well, the beginning of verse three, he says, so were they worse sinners because they suffered in this way? No, Jesus is uh, you know, unequivocal on this, right? There is no question that in this case, these people did not suffer because of something that they had done. No, that is not it. They are not responsible. 
And notice what Jesus does. He says, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, that is really a stark contrast. People are hurting. People are shocked. People are disappointed. And they want to know, what what should we think about that? And Jesus says, you need to think about your own life. And you need to think about how precarious it is. As a matter of fact, Jesus drives the point home by bringing up another tragedy. This one uh, was in a place here called Siloam. Now, this is a part of the city of Jerusalem. We find uh, elsewhere in the Gospels a story of Jesus healing someone at the pool of Siloam. And this was along the wall of Jerusalem. And so this tower that's here referred to is probably some high point on the wall. And perhaps there was work being done there or scaffolding there. And somehow it came came down and it said that it killed uh, many people, 18 people. And so Jesus brings up another tragedy, one that seems to have no particular cause. In other words, there's not a clear person to blame about this natural event. And Jesus says, do you think that happened because of the sin of those 18 people? And again, he responds in the same way. No, I, but I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Do you see what Jesus wants the people listening to him to do? And he wants us to do is to think in terms of inevitability. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that death is inevitable. No one uh, at least uh, not other than two people that are listed in the Bible, uh, you know, Enoch and, uh, and Elijah. They're the only two people where their death is not reported in all of the Bible and all of human history. Everyone is going to die. As a matter of fact, the Bible is very honest about that. The psalmist in Psalm uh, 39 Verse 4 through 6 says this, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. The psalmist gets it. Our life is short. It is like uh, a simply a breath, uh, and uh, we know how that is. You breathe, and it's gone. I always think of those first uh, cool autumn or winter mornings when you go outside, and you can see your breath, and almost immediately it disappears. Here the psalmist says, that is what our life is like. You see, we need to think about that. Jesus says we all need to think about that. Because all of us are standing on the precipice of eternity. And the question that we need to always be asking is, what kind of eternity are we on the precipice of? Are we on the precipice of one that will have eternal joy and constant pleasure in the presence of God? Are we on the, proce- uh, on the precipice of an eternity uh, where the opposite is true, where we'll, we will be alienated from God, where there will be no pleasure but only suffering. This is what Jesus wants people to think about, about the immediacy of uh, the, our own, the end of our own life. And I know that this is challenging. I have uh, been a pastor for many years, and I can tell you that over the years, 
participation at funerals, even of the most dear and lovely people, continues to decline. People simply don't want to think about death. They don't want to go to a funeral or a, a funeral home. They don't want to even even consider it in any way. We like to believe that we will be forever young and that we will live forever. And while certainly medical advances and technology has come along in such a way that uh, people's lives are being extended, they're still being extended as a uh, really rounding error in the big scheme of things. I always try to encourage people to do a little math with me. You know, if you, for instance, take one and you divide it by one, it's one. If you take one and you divide it by two, it's a half. If you take one and you divide it by four, it's just a quarter. But what do you get if you put one over, let's say, a trillion? Do you know that you would round that to zero? Okay, let's say you take 100 and you divide it by a trillion. Do you know that significant that statistically speaking that is an insignificant number it's effectively zero well that's helpful for us you say chris why all the math i thought this was a sermon i'm just simply trying to say even if i live or you live 100 years in comparison to eternity which is far more than a trillion years our life is like david said in the psalm like a breath it's here and it's gone. Now, why is it helpful to think about that? Why does Jesus want us to think about it? Because he wants us to use this very short period of time we have in a way that will lead to the greatest future, right? And what is it that we could do today that would put us in the best stead for the inevitable future? Well, he says it right here. He says, repent, repent. Now, that's a very Bible word, isn't it? Repent. Repent literally means you need to turn 180 degrees around. Repenting means that you recognize that in and of yourself, that you don't deserve an eternity of pleasure or, in the pres or to be in the presence of God, that in and of yourself, that you deserve God's displeasure. And you say, wait a second, I don't think I've been all that bad. Well, remember that sin that is missing the mark of God's perfect standard is not just something we do, but it can be something that we say or something that we think. And it's not only those things that we say, think, and do, it's those things we fail to, to uh, think, say, and do. And Matter of fact, it's so bad that in Romans 3.23, it says, For all, that's each and every person, all have sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. That's another very shorthand way of saying that they've fallen short of the glory God created human beings to have. Because you and me were created to perfectly reflect God's glory here in this world. And none of us have done it. Well, repenting is recognizing that we have not done it, that we do not do it, being honest with God about our failures and how much we've fallen short, and turning that 180 degrees away from ourselves and toward God in Jesus Christ, saying, I don't 
want to try to do it myself anymore. I don't want to stand in my own efforts. I want to depend completely and fully upon Jesus. That's what Jesus has been encouraging people to do in his ministry. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, now is the time for you to turn around and move toward me, the one that God has sent. Now, in case we missed it, there's a third thing in this text that we see in the parable that I think will bring it home in a beautiful way. So I said the first thing we do in the light of tragic situations is we look uh, in terms of responsibility. What Jesus wants us to do is first think in terms of inevitability. And then thirdly, I want us to see that we need to think in terms of a very special mercy. We see that in the parable of this fig tree. Notice how the story goes. Jesus here tells a parable about a man who goes to look at a fig tree. Now, he owns the place where the fig tree is, and he has gone for now three years looking to this fig tree to produce fruit. And guess what? There is no fruit. And so he says to the person who is the gardener who's taking care of everything, listen, cut it down because it's wasting space. Now, I know that we might think, wow, that sounds harsh to cut down a tree, uh, you know, because it hasn't borne fruit, you know, for three years. But the reality is a fig tree should bear fruit every single year. That's what a fig tree is designed to do. And particularly in the ancient Near East, you wouldn't have wanted to leave a tree in the middle of your uh, vineyard or in the middle of your uh, uh Oh, goodness, it just jumped out of my mind. A tree farm, uh, you know, an orchard. Yes, it does come eventually. Uh, you wouldn't want to leave it there. Why? Because it's taking precious resources. You see, in the ancient Near East, water was scarce and you didn't waste it. So you wouldn't have left a tree there in the middle of your orchard that wasn't actually producing fruit. You'd get rid of it so that you could put something there that might grow and actually yield some sort of uh, profit. And so he says, look, let's just cut it down. It's had enough time. It hasn't borne fruit. And we notice that the gardener steps in. He intervenes and he says, well, okay, but wait, let's wait one more year. You see, this is looking in the perspective of mercy. Did this tree, I know this is a parable. I'm not going to push it further than a parable should be pushed. But did this tree deserve another year? And the answer is no. Three years running, it's produced no fruit. Logically, there's no reason to believe that a fourth year would make any difference. And yet the gardener says, "I give me one more year, and I'm going to pay very careful attention to this. The language of this parable uh, shows us that he is going to invest in this tree. He's going to dig down. He's going to put in new and, and very fertile soil. He's going to put on fertilizer, which our text very graphically said uh, manure, which is what they used as fertilizer. In other words, he's going to give this tree every opportunity to bear fruit, even though everything is against it bearing fruit in the next year. This is mercy. You see, grace is defined as uh, getting unconditional favor, that is, getting something that we neither deserve nor can expect. Mercy is getting something in spite of deserving the opposite. 
So think of mercy as getting the opposite of what you should get, not just unexpected or undeserved, but completely the opposite of what you expect. And that's what happens. And by telling this parable, Jesus is letting the people who are listening, particularly the nation of Israel, know that the time has about run out, that they, as the people of God, have been fruitless for far too long, that the time is nigh when they will simply be cut down. Do you know that uh, John the Baptist uses very similar language back in Luke chapter 3? I know it's been a while uh, since we looked at that, and so I'll go back and I'll read it. Listen to the language of John the Baptist when he was preaching. Uh, He says, uh, beginning in verse 8, Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, it's more than a coincidence that John uh, the Baptist uses very similar language uh, as Jesus here in this parable, and it's because they're using language that's called eschatological language. I know that is a big word, but it's a beautiful word. Eschaton refers to the end times, those things that would come at the end. And what John the Baptist and what Jesus Uh, is talking about are things regarding the end times. And he's saying, look, the end times are here. They have begun with my coming. They have been uh, basically proven by my miracles and my ministry. This is the end times, and it is time to bear fruit. And so what he's saying is that there is mercy, but that mercy is only available until the time really is ended. This really correlates with what we looked at last week at the end of chapter 12, that today is the day of salvation. But do you see by having today that that is a tremendous, tremendous mercy? Now, I know you've probably never thought about this uh, as you've gone to a funeral, but going to a funeral is a tremendous mercy. You say, well, how's that? As a matter of fact, today I was uh, driving to take my dad out for his birthday, and I was driving down Highway 11 in South Carolina, and I passed a graveyard where uh, the cars lined the highway, and there were hundreds of people in a graveyard. I have no idea who had passed away, but it was obviously someone well-known and well-loved, and there were people out in the sun as far as you could see at this funeral. And do you know that being there, as sad and tragic as I'm sure that death was, was a mercy to all of those in participation? Why? Because it gave them an opportunity to reflect on what Jesus says here about uh, the inevitability of the end of our life. And it gave them, I hope, I have no idea who spoke there, but I hope they spoke about the available mercy of God to all of those who would believe in Jesus Christ, receive him and all that he has done for us as a gift that they might not fear the end of their life as inevitable as it may be, but that they might live confidently and boldly. 
You see, I know, I know, I have done this long enough to know that people don't like thinking about the end of their life. But let me tell you, there is a great freedom when we take advantage of the mercy offered to us in Christ, when we recognize that in and of ourselves, we are rebels against God. We do deserve judgment from him. We do deserve to be cast away from his presence. But God came in the person of Jesus Christ, and he lived a perfect life. And at the end of his life, he was cut down not because he was fruitless, he was eminently fruitful, but he was cut down in the place of fruitless people like me and like you. And he rose from the dead on the third day to show that he had paid the price for fruitlessness in my life and in yours, so that all who believe in him could be called not just followers of God, but they could be called children of God. And that's what you and I can be called if we embrace him. That is mercy that he extends to us. I pray that we will think on that. Now, why, as I said earlier, is that a freeing thing? Because when I take advantage of that mercy and I look to the inevitably inevitability excuse me, of my death, do you know what I know is that I'm going to be okay? Do you know what I know? The people in my life who have trusted in Christ are going to be okay. Do you know what I can do as a consequence of that? Is I can live with freedom and boldness in this life because I know that the worst someone can do is take this life away and then I get reward for all eternity. Can you imagine how much bolder that enables me to be in my life? How much more loving, how much more generous, how much more I can be present to those who are in need, how much more I can mourn with the one who mourns, or I can rejoice with the one who rejoices. Because to be honest, my life is taken care of, and I can think about other people and their needs, and I can think about the glory of God in a freeing way because I have thought about the inevitability of the end of my life, and I have embraced the mercy that is offered in Jesus Christ. I want that for you. I want that for every person who listens or watches. I want you to have confidence, and I want us to listen to what Jesus says. I know it's easy just to look for people to blame when bad things happen. Instead, first, let's ask, how are we doing in terms of our own mortality? And then let us fall on the mercy of God. I think this will be a helpful and freeing thing. There's always a time after that to perhaps talk about responsibility, but we need to deal with first things first. And that's what Jesus wants us to do here in this text. I pray that he will give us grace uh, in that regard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this text. And while it seems rough to us uh, that uh, you tell people to repent who are mourning over the unjust death of people in Jerusalem, Lord, that we see it is a kindness. It is a mercy in and of itself because it pushes us to think about things that are most crucial, most important, most eternal. Oh, Lord, we pray that that will always be our gut instinct, that we will think about our own life and the 
brevity of it and that we will fall again in repentance upon your mercy. Oh, Lord, we pray that you will give us the grace for this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining with us as we study God's word together. I do encourage you to get in touch with us. The information is on the screen. You can go to our website and learn more. Uh, You can drop us an email and tell us what you're learning or how we can pray about you. Or you can even find out how to support what's happening here at King's Cross. We do love to hear from you. And now before you leave, I want you to hear this blessing that comes from God's word. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine, uh, shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.